we're in the midst of a series called The Movement. Turn to your neighbor and say, The Movement. The movement. We're talking about this incredible move of God that happened in the book of Acts, and we've been stirred with hope because if God did it before, he can do it again. And so we started off the year kind of looking at this. We took a little hiatus, and now we're jumping back in, specifically dialoguing on the question of what could this book of Acts awakening look like in real life? What we see here in the book of Acts is not some superhuman spiritual people who levitate out of bed in the morning. These are very ordinary people just like you and I who when the spirit of God supernaturally empowers them, guess what? He uses them to change the world. And lest you think I am being your classic preacher using hyperbole and exaggeration, we sit here thousands of years after this book of Acts Awakening still celebrating the same Jesus they preached. It changed the world. And he could do it again. Last week, Joel Romulus, the son of this church family, who's now the founder and director of Made For More, a ministry working with student athletes. How many of you enjoyed having Joel with us? How many of you would like to have Joel back? I think that's in the works. He talked about from Acts 10 how God shows no partiality, sort of highlighting through the story of Peter and Cornelius' God's heart for unity within this beautiful diversity, every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. If you missed it, check it out on our podcast or YouTube channel this week. I want to look more closely at the unifying thread that held this diverse community of followers of Jesus together, specifically looking at the title that they were given. Does that stir some intrigue with you? I hope it does. Stand your feet as we get ready to read and honor God's word here in the room, watching online, wherever you may be viewing from. We're going to be in Acts chapter 11. If you want to flip there in your Bible, I do not have my paper Bible because I couldn't find it this morning. So I've got Sky Bible. You've got Sky Bible. We'll all read up there together. By the way, I know, you know, I I don't care about this, but some of you, I feel like I need to let you know uh, that Anthony Richardson, the, the Gator football quarterback, has been listed on the Maxwell list as one of the players to watch for the best potential players in all of college football. Not that it matters to any of you because the sky is blue and the sun is orange. Go Gators and we know who God roots for. But I just want to let you know that. Shout out to the Canes fans because your quarterback got listed there as well. And the Seminoles, I think they listed one of your players for like best middle schoolers um, around or something. I don't know, it was weird. It was something weird like that. Anyways, not the point. How many of you are ready for the Bible? If you're ready, say, I'm ready. All right, here we go. This is Acts chapter 11. Now, those who had been scattered, you remember this a few chapters earlier? Those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed, when he was murdered at the hands of Saul and others, they traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, they went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. How many of you know it's very good news when Jesus is preached? We can continue. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Now, news about this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas. You remember our boy Barney, the son of encouragement, the generous one? They sent Barnabas to Antioch. They wanted to kind of check this thing out. When he arrived and saw that the grace of God, what the grace of God had done, he was glad. Everybody say glad. He was glad. He encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. Continue. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. You remember this guy? This this Saul guy becomes the Paul guy. 
He went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people, and the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Did you know that? Chapter 11, this is the very first time this term gets utilized in the known world. They were first called Christians at Antioch. What's the big deal? There's a lot of big deals. Let's pray and we'll jump in. Jesus, speak and have your way this morning. Amen. Amen? Turn your neighbor, give him a high five, an elbow bump, a fist bump, a kiss on the lips if you're married to him. And we're going to dive into this thing. I want to begin with a question that has plagued me for some decade plus, and maybe it's bothered you as well. Why don't Christians look more like Jesus? Ever wondered that before? Ever vented that out loud? Ever been there in frustration? Why don't Christians look more like Jesus? Ever looked in the mirror and thought that to yourself, Christian? Why don't Christians look more like Jesus? I had a buddy of mine send me a video from The Chosen. How many of you have watched The Chosen? If you have not watched it, you're late to the party, but we saved you a seat, all right? You can still come and check it out. Probably the best, in my opinion, depiction of the life and ministry of Jesus that I have ever seen depicted cinematically. Like, it's actually a good TV show. And it's about Jesus. Like, it's awesome. And so what they did, the, the, the directors of The Chosen, they invited in a whole group of Gen Z. Now, if you're not familiar with Gen Z, Gen Z is the newest up-and-coming generation. This would be like middle schoolers to college-age students. If you did not know, Gen Z is the most unchurched generation in the history of America. The overwhelming majority of Gen Z have no religious affiliation. They didn't grow up going to church or were not at least actively involved in church. And so the chosen cast was curious, what would a bunch of Gen Zers with no real context for, for the Gospels, no real context for this TV show, what would they think about Jesus? And so they invited a bunch of Gen Zers. They, they didn't tell them what the show was about. They just said, hey, we want to fly you out, all expense paid, give you this experience, get to watch this brand new TV show. It's got sort of spiritual overtones, and we want to see what you think. And so they had a bunch of people show up. Most of them had no church background or very limited and a lot of them bad church background. And none of them were actively practicing Christians. And they said, we just want you to see what it's like. And here's a snippet of what happened. Check this out. I chose not to believe in anything. And I said, if I want to believe in God, you know, I'd have to believe in aliens and Sasquatches and the Loch Ness Monster and stuff like that. I think if Jesus were here right now, I wouldn't be ready to meet him. I feel guilty for so many things, and I just don't feel like I'm out at a place where I'd be okay facing him. I like to assume the best in people, and so when I'm in church, every time I see people, I always assume that they have their lives together, and I'm just like, here. Religion quite often is something that we've been a little disenchanted by. I'm not deeply into the faith like I used to be. I don't want to serve a God that condemns good people to hell. What if I just die and burn it for eternity, you know, because maybe they were right. I was saying to God, like, am I an awful person? And I just couldn't hear God's voice about it. I have so much doubt. What is the point of life? Why am I here? Do I even want to still be here? It was so intense to be dropped into a group 
where everyone had such a complex relationship with God and with Christianity. The experience was unlike anything I've really experienced before. Not knowing what religious TV show we're about to sit on a couch and binge watch with random strangers. We don't care if you love it, hate it. We hope you can at least relate to it. Help us understand what's happening here. I did not expect that. This is not what I thought it was gonna be, but it brings yeah. you in. It reminded me a lot of like Thanksgiving time with my friends. I mean, it seems cool, but I feel like very wary about entering into that domain again. I'm kind of terrified of going back to church because I feel like no one protected me. When I was little, I would pray and I felt like I wasn't hurt. I really have struggled in loving myself. I had to leave, and like I was in an awful life situation. The fact that like Jesus is in here and he's saying, well, I came here for you. It was, it was big, I really liked that. If Jesus can love me, then I should be able to love me. God is calling you. There are people I've had in my life for years that don't know me like this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, they're about to. Thing, but as I watched this, two prevailing thoughts and really emotions came into my heart. The first one was hope. Watching Gen Z, a generation that's largely been unaccustomed to the, the gospels and the teachings of Jesus and maybe only gotten a taste of religion, it was inspiring to watch so many hearts be open. So many, man, if Jesus is actually like that, if Jesus is really, if that's how he actually thinks, then, then maybe I need to check him out a little bit further. The first thought was hope, but the second really prevailing emotion was heartbreak. As over and over and over again, it became abundantly clear how poorly the people of God had represented the God that they claim. A few of the people that did have church background and church story shared and their overwhelming experience well, was nothing like the Jesus that they had just watched on the screen. Why don't Christians look more like Jesus? Do a random search for Jesus and you'll get all sorts of inspiring adjectives. You do a random search for Christians, your Google search looks very different. But what if it didn't have to be that way? In fact, what if it can be different? And what we find here in Acts 11, as these disciples, as these followers of Jesus are first called Christians, is hope that the people of God can actually be a better representation than maybe we've been in the past. And there was a community who did it. And there were these bunch of ragtag, ordinary people that became passionate followers of Jesus. And I gotta tell you, if Christians in name become disciples in lifestyle, that can change the world.
In fact, it did. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't that be beautiful? Thank you, RJ, all one of y'all. Wouldn't that be nice? Talk back to me. We'll get through this sermon quicker. I want to look at what we can find because there is deep encouragement to be found in Acts chapter 11. And I want to look at what they did that was so demonstrative to a waiting and watching world that they did not give themselves the name Christians like we like to do. They were given the name. And I want to see what lessons we can learn. If I've, I've got a big idea. If you're taking notes, I'd encourage you to jot this down digitally and in paper form. Here it is. And we're going to hang our hat on this idea and walk through the passage, and then we'll go. They will know we are Christians because we look like Christ. They will know we are Christians, not because we say it, not because our bumper sticker tells it, not because we have all the paraphernalia on our personhood. They will know we are Christians because we look like Christ. Are you ready to dive in? Let's see what lessons can be learned from these first called Christians, Antioch Church. Point number one is this. This is a church on the move. Everybody say, on the move. You ever known someone that's always on the move? Anybody? You ever show of hands? You ever known somebody like that? My son Liam, our son Liam, our almost six-year-old boy, crazy, almost first grader, that, that boy is always on the move. Like, I think I've seen that boy walk when he first learned, and that was maybe the last time. Like, he runs everywhere. Just this morning, I'm like, I know what I'm going to be preaching about, and he sees me in the hallway, and he goes, Dad, and he sprints, like, the entire hallway, and he's still, you know, his legs are short, and so he's not, so I'm like, it took an eternity, but the entire time, there is no walk with Liam. He's just zooming everywhere. He was at summer camp the past few weeks, and I think, he, I think they gave out all of their band-aids to my son alone because that boy's just running everywhere he's tripping on rocks he's tripping on kids he's, he don't care he's gonna run everywhere my son is always zooming on the move and what we see here in Antioch is a church on the move bring up verse 19 for me verse 19 for me with, real quick this is what it says now those who had been scattered by the persecution broke out as Stephen was killed and they traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch spreading the word only to Jews this is a movement church this is a church on the move but why are they moving why are they moving persecution right just to be clear contextually buddies finally, and Badinas finally started moving because they're running for that. Some of you are like, why? I don't know why. That's my, my wife asked a question. Why? They're running because they're running for their lives. Now, remember, this is interesting. Jesus told them, hey, I want you to wait until you get filled with the Holy Spirit, right? Check. Acts chapter 2 already happened, but it's chapter 11. He said, wait until you get, wait until the Holy Spirit fills you with power from on high. You're going to be my witnesses. Where does he say to go? You're going to be in Jerusalem, where they were, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And guess what? They just stayed in Jerusalem until persecution hit. See, God has a way of working. Well, go figure. It should be a Bible verse. All things for good. To them who love God and are called according to his purpose, the disciples up to this point, Jesus had an incredible vision and a mission for the whole world. And the disciples were like, nah, but we just want to chill where it's comfortable because that's human nature, right? And then persecution hits and they're like, oh, we're fine going now, Lord. We'll, we'll go everywhere. We'll go anywhere. We just want to save our lives. And yet they left, most likely, we, we can probably safely deduce, they left out of self-preservation. And yet in the sovereignty and mercy of God, everywhere they go, 
new life starts sprouting up. Because God's just that good. He's just that good. God called them to go, and they didn't. Now they did, and as a result, blessing and salvation follows. And here's my point in this first segment. I want us to realize God has a knack for using even seasons of persecution and hardship to bring about life and flourishing if you're willing to place it in his hands. It's just, it's just one of the things that he can do. A lot of times the hardship is brought about by life. A lot of times the hardship is just brought about by humanity. Sometimes it's the devil. Sometimes it's circumstances. But God is so competent that even the most gut-wrenching circumstance, he can work somehow miraculously for good if you're willing to place it in his hands. A lot of you know I lost my father about three years ago tragically, and it, it crushed me. My dad was one of my heroes. He was my mentor. He was my golf partner. He kicked my butt every single time we played. And, and when he passed unexpectedly from a stroke, it was a devastating blow. This past week, I got invited by a friend to go on her podcast, and she just lost her mother about a year ago. And, and the episode of this season is all about grief. And, and it was emotional. She's sharing about losing her mom, who was an incredible, incredible woman of God. And I'm sharing about my dad, who was an incredible man and mentor and husband and father and man of God. And, and we're kind of sharing our hearts. And we get towards the end of the episode, and she's like, hey, I, I just want to ask you, everyone processes and deals with things differently. John, how were you able to sort of keep your faith and, and your posture of belief even in the midst of tragedy? kind of stopped for a second. I'm like, you know, I, I guess it helped that at that point, you know, God and I had some miles on the tires already. Like we had been walking together for over a decade plus, almost two decades at that point. And, and in the midst of the hurt, which didn't go away, and in the midst of the pain, which was very real, I was able to look back a little bit and, re and realize, wait a second, every time something bad has happened, this is the worst thing, the most painful thing that ever happened to me, losing my dad, but every time something bad happened, if I was just willing to say, God, this sucks, but I know you're with me, and this is horrible, but I know you're here, and, and I know every single time he was able to somehow use it. And with that posture, I was able to look back and see all of the ways that God had given me grace and opportunity and blessing and chances with my dad that I would not have otherwise had if he had not led me. Matthew Henry says it like this. This moment in Acts 11, this persecution which was intended for the hurt of the church was made to work for its good as Jacob's curse of the tribe of Levi, I will divide them and scatter them in Israel, was actually turned into a blessing. Listen to what he said. The enemy is designed to scatter and lose them. Christ designed to scatter and use them. Yeah, I'll read that one again. The enemy's designed to scatter and lose them. Christ's designed to scatter and use them. I don't care how savage this earth is, God is a better chess player. And so he's working behind the scenes, and we see it, orchestrating even this great tragedy, this murder of Stephen, all these tragic things. It's not saying it's good things. It's saying God is so good, he can even use bad things for good. Anything, church, let me just remind us, anything, even horrible, heartbreaking, gut-wrenching things, if placed in his hands, can be used for good. 
And the first call in this movement and what we see here at this church in Antioch is calling us to be a people of faith in the good and in the bad, in the mountains and in the valleys. Let me remind you, church, God is working. He is working. Yeah, and he's good and he's faithful. See, God had a vision and a call for his people. It goes all the way back. It's even before Matthew 28 and the Great Commission. It goes all the way back to Genesis 12. God tells Abraham, hey, I'm going to use you and, your, and the nation that will come from you to be a, a blessing. And through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. He says later in Isaiah, you're going to be a, a light to the nations. And up to this point, it's kind of happened haphazardly and accidentally. And it's now in this moment, as a result of persecution and hardship, really, that this begins, this promise begins to be enacted. Like, I imagine you've got all the angels in heaven like, finally, finally. This is, this is God's heart for all people, every tribe, tongue, nation, and language that's finally culminating in Acts 11 as the gospel goes forth from the seed of Abraham to the world. It's amazing. It's incredible. God is working. The church is moving. But it's not just some human-focused, natural, strategic movement. This is actually point number two. God, they're not just moving. Point number two, God is moving them strategically. Everybody say strategically. There's strategy here. Verse 20, look at this. God is moving them strategically. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, they went to Antioch, began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus and the Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. See, God is so smart. Very good theology right there. God is sovereign. There's a Bible term. God is so incredibly strategic that he didn't just pick some random city for this to take off. He picked Antioch. What's the big deal with Antioch? Well, we come to find out, and it was not the case at the beginning, but it becomes a case down the road, is Antioch ends up becoming the third most prominent city in the Roman Empire, which was the empire taking over the entire world. After Rome and Alexandria, it was Antioch, which means... God picked the best place for this gospel movement to begin to explode. God picked the most strategic location. How many of you are like small business leaders? You're in some sort of leadership in your job, in your family, in something like that? Okay. This is, if you're a business person, God basically, before we ever discovered it, God is running the age-old hub-and-spoke principle. God's like, where's the best starting point to be a hub for extension of this good news gospel movement? I got a great one. We'll do Jerusalem for the Jews, and we'll do Antioch for the nations. God is doing this. He, he, he's leading his people in this way. By the way, great takeaway, if you're in any sort of leadership, you could just rely on your natural abilities and your intuition and your book smarts, and you could do that, and, and some of y'all are smart enough, it might go okay or you could tap into the wisdom and strategy of heaven and see how that goes for you. You tell me which one you think would go better. God is moving them strategically. By the way, God is still doing this. This is exactly what I feel is going on with Greenhouse and our involvement in Guyana. We did not have a grand vision to plant in Guyana. Michelle's been coming to me. Michelle, our missions coordinator, is from Guyana. Those are her people. That's her home. And she said, John, I think God wants to do something in Guyana. I'm like, that sounds so great. Where is that? It's awesome, you know? And, 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 and so we, we end up, then the pandemic hits, 
and nobody can go anywhere, so our whole church has to shift online in 10 days, and because Guyana was locked down, like we were locked down, a bunch of people from Guyana end up joining on church online, and then God starts moving, and then people start getting baptized, and then microchurches get planted, and then a kids' ministry gets going, and then middle schoolers get going, and before we know it, we're like, oh, this, I think we accidentally planted a church, and then they strike oil, and all of a sudden, there's all these international visitors coming into Guyana, and they really need some sort of a, a faith community that has international sensibilities and maybe international ties that can help reach all these different peoples and nations and languages that were not formerly in Guyana, Guyana but now all of a sudden are. And Michelle just chuckles. She's like, God, I'm telling you. John, I'm telling you. She doesn't call me God. That would be weird. She says, John, I'm telling you. God is setting this up. He set this up, and I can't disagree with her because it wasn't my plan or our plan, but it was somebody's plan. See, God is moving them strategically. The church is moving. God is moving them strategically, and lastly, they are moving with God's heart for people. This, I think, is the most important thing. It's not just what they're doing. It's how they're doing it. Jesus said, people will know you're my disciples by the way you what? Love one another. Look at verse 22. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem. They send Barnabas to do some reconnaissance and make sure it's legit, good leadership there. When he gets to Antioch, he sees the grace of God. He's glad. He encourages them, says, remain true to the Lord. He's a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, faith, and a great number of people brought to the Lord. Awesome. And if that was the end of the story, that'd be a pretty great story, but it's not. Because then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Now hold up. This is huge. You guys remember Saul, right? Like the, the, the Christian murderer, the religious terrorist, gets radically encountered by Jesus, supernaturally and quite literally knocked off his high horse. He gets blinded. He gets prayed for, receives his sight. God says, I have a call for you, Saul. I'm going to use you to be a light to the Gentile, a light to the nations. He gets fired up, and what does he do? He does what any of us would do. He starts running after that call. He starts preaching where he's at, and then he gets death threats, and he has to leave. Then he goes to Jerusalem, and they're kind of like, uh, we don't really know if we want to trust you, buddy, who says you're on our team, but you've just been murdering us. You could be a plant. Not quite sure. And, and remember who vouches for our boy Saul? Who vouches for him? Barnabas, right? This son of encouragement, this great encourager. And so he vouches for him, and the disciples are like, man, Saul, we don't really know, but Barney, we do. Okay, cool. If, you're, if he says yes, then we'll give. And so he starts preaching in Jerusalem because he's got a call from God on his life. And God said he's going to use him, and he has this dramatic encounter with Jesus. And so he starts preaching, and guess what? he gets more death threats. And so the disciples, out of a realization, and really a wise realization, that Saul is both a liability to the community of faith, and he is probably not going to be very effective amongst the people that he was just murdering, they send him back home to Tarsus. Why does that matter? Oh, it matters so much. Bible scholars and commentators estimate that at minimum, Saul was back home in Tarsus for five years, and it was most likely more like 10 years. This means that after receiving a dramatic encounter with Jesus, after literally hearing the voice of God calling him to this grandiose vision, Saul gets a little bit of a start, and then he gets placed on the bench, and he goes home for a decade to live with mom and dad in the basement. And he gets thrown back into the family tent-making business. 
and he's there for most likely a decade. You ever been disappointed or frustrated by God's timing? Whew, this is a message. It's so easy to breeze past, and I know I'm pumped, and I might preach a little long because I haven't preached in a month, but it's so easy to breathe past Acts chapter 11 and be like, oh, yeah, cool, God moved in this place, he moved in that place, and he moved in Antioch. Cool, love it. But that's not the whole story. See, Saul, our religious terrorist buddy who gets encountered by Jesus, he receives his call in, on the road to Damascus, but he gets activated for ministry in Antioch. God starts moving in Antioch, and, and, and Barnabas kind of realizes, wait a second, Saul couldn't really do ministry among the Gentiles, amongst the Jewish people, because he had been going after hunting down and murdering these Jewish followers of Jesus. There's a little bit of mistrust there, but the Gentiles don't know anything about that. This is finally a moment and a space to tag Saul back into life-giving ministry. And so Barney goes all the way to Tarsus, brings him back, and works with him hand-in-hand doing discipleship ministry in Antioch for a year. Can you imagine what would have happened to the early church if Saul had not gotten tagged back in by Barnabas? The story would have looked really different, wouldn't it? And I just feel like I'm, I'm supposed to pause for a moment. This was not in my notes, but this entire morning, I've had a deep sense in my heart from the Holy Spirit, I hope, I think, that for some of you who feel like God spoke a dream to your heart, and it was real, and it felt, I mean, palpably life-giving, and you were excited, and maybe you even started on that journey. And it's been months, it's been years, maybe even a decade And you feel like I think it's very safe to imagine Paul felt, Saul felt at times like you've been put on the shelf, like God has forgotten about you, or maybe like you're getting what you deserve. I can only imagine Saul sitting there back at mom and dad's place thinking, you know what? I mean, I did murder all these people. You know what? I mean, what I think? God was just going to say, you get a pass. Everything's good now. It's all good. Like I'm, yeah, this is fair. This is just I'm getting what I deserve. And I need you to know, friend, if you are here or you are watching online, God has not forgotten about you. God has not put you on the shelf. I know God's timing is not our timing, but it is a better timing. And if you are still breathing oxygen, God's timing is not done and the expiration date has not hit. Trust the Lord. He's got a plan and he's got the perfect timing and he knows, he knows. God needed to do, I'm guessing, things in Saul so that he could do some things through Saul. And it's in Antioch that he becomes our beloved Paul. It's only a chapter or so later when he goes from Saul, 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 to, and then Saul also called Paul. God did something through Barnabas. God did something in Saul, and I'm praying that God would do something in you. I've really got two applications for this entire message. And my first one is this. If you are in the room or watching online or over in Guyana and you feel like a Saul, you feel like you've been put on the shelf, you feel like God has maybe even forgotten about you, can I remind you that God has not forgotten? He's got a really good memory and he doesn't have ADD and he doesn't procrastinate. He knows and he's working. And I'm praying that if there's a dream that God has placed in your heart or a vision or a calling he's given you that maybe has dwindled or even died, I'm praying in Jesus' name he would speak life to that by his spirit and resurrect those things. 
And the second one is this. I'm praying that we would be a church full of Barnabas, Barnabas. A church full of Barneys. Where we are just, this is what's so beautiful and unique about what happens with Barnabas. We live in a culture that is overwhelmingly self-focused and self-interested. We look out for our promotion. We look out for our opportunities. We look out for our chance to shine. And I'm not saying that's always bad, but I just want us to look at Barnabas. Barnabas is obviously on the lookout for somebody else. And when he sees a moment in Antioch for this dude named Saul that maybe thought everybody, including God himself, had forgotten about him, what we see is that God had not forgotten about Saul and neither had Barney. I'm praying we become a church of Barney's. I'm praying we become a church where we are actively on the lookout for where other people can step in and shine. Where we're in micro church and we're like, yeah, I know I could do this, but man, I've seen so-and-so and they don't realize it yet, but they've got a gift in this area. Man, let me give them a shot. Let me encourage them to step out and follow their calling. Let me help them to get in touch with the gifts that God has given them so they can be effective in the calling and destiny on their lives. What would it look like if here at Greenhouse, if as a church family, we became the type of people that look out not only for our own interests, but especially for the interests of others. Well, that sounds like the Bible. And it's what we see here in Acts 11. When this happens, it's absolutely beautiful. This week, we, we gained some new family members. This week, Reed and Jaheem both got baptized, and they're very exciting. They're here with us this morning. Started recommitting to follow the way and the path of Jesus, and that's amazing and that's incredible, but the untold story is that there was a Barnabas in the equation and his name is Angel and he goes to our microchurch and Angel loves Jesus and Angel loves people and Angel loves the Bible and, and God just stirred his heart to start talking to the guys that he works out with in the gym and, and a, an invitation turned into one of the guys coming and he came, he's like, man, this is, is kind of like the Gen Zers you saw in the video, like, whoa, I didn't know church could be like somewhat relevant and like helpful and inspiring and so he starts telling other friends and so these guys come and, and God moves and it culminates in them getting baptized and and it's beautiful, but there's more backstory there, see, because for months, Angel's been in a community of faith where there have been a bunch of other guys encouraging him and calling out his gifts and telling him to go for it and to go after it. Here's the moral of the story, friends. We all need a Barnabas. So you know one of the best ways to find one? You be one. Because like recognizes like. Here's my prayer, that we would be disciples of Jesus, like these disciples in Antioch that go after not just our own calling and our own improvement, our own platforming, but we actively go after other people catching fire and coming alive as well. Starting with Barnabas, Antioch becomes a launching pad for kingdom calling and destiny. And my prayer and our prayer is that Greenhouse would be an Antioch-like sending outpost of people and resources for the kingdom. But there's one last beautiful and unique thing happening here in Antioch that we cannot gloss over. See, it's not just they're doing the Jesus thing. It's not just they're following the path of Jesus. It's not just that there's some religious people talking some pie in the sky idealized. As they do their thing, what we see is that a waiting world is watching. Verse 26 tells us, and they were first called Christians at Antioch. I don't know if you knew this, but 
That wasn't a thing up until this point. We're 11 chapters in. These were largely Jewish followers of Jesus, followers of the way. They were disciples. They were Talmudim. There were lots of different terms. But but what ended up happening is in Antioch, they were living so undeniably in a way that people out of spite gave them a derogatory nickname because that's what this was. This wasn't a term of endearment and respect. It was kind of like, man, all of y'all, all of y'all just kind of look like, oh, your little Jesus is out there. Your Christ, Christians, your little Christian, your little, like your little Messiah. We're going to call you guys Christians. How cute. And I need us to realize the incredible diametric shift from how we think about our life. We live in a world in which we love to give titles to ourselves. We do it on social media all the time. You put your little tagline, influencer, foodie, whatever, whatever your thing is, and, and you're like, man, speedster, athlete, whatever. And we, we live in a world in which we give ourselves the titles, which I'm not saying is wrong necessarily, but it is an entirely different, more powerful, and more humbling thing to hear how other people describe you than how you describe yourself. One of the problems with our current moment is that we very freely and flippantly toss labels on ourselves. Oh, well, I'm a Christian. What does that mean? I don't really know. (laughs) Like back then, if they were going to give themselves a label like follower of Jesus, they're basically signing their own death warrant because we say Jesus is Lord. They didn't say that. Everybody says Caesar is Lord and they say Jesus is Lord. So you didn't play with some title, which is why they didn't give it to themselves. They were given it. Take a moment for reflection right now. If you did not tell people how you identify in the faith, would people even know? What would they call you? This isn't a moment for guilt or shame, but I think it's appropriate to pause and realize that they were first called Christians at Antioch because they looked so much like Christ. In fact, it was undeniable. To be a follower of Jesus, to be a disciple means that you are not perfectly, but you are genuinely and progressively following in the ways of Jesus, not just theorizing on the ideas of Jesus. And I want to call us to be disciples like we see in Antioch. These people, they were were Christ minded. They were Christ honoring. They were Christ following. They were Christ speaking. They were so much so in their life and action. I'm sure not perfectly because they were definitely ordinary people, but they were so much so living out the ways and the teachings of Jesus that the only conclusion a watching world had is to say, man, these are like, these are just like little, little Christian. They're just like their little Christ. Let's call them Christians. Because when people got around these Christians, Things happened. In fact, when people got around these Christians, things happened around these Christians like what happened around their Christ. The lost were found. And found people became whole. And people who were alienated and alone and strangers found family. And Antioch becomes a hub for kingdom transformation. And my prayer is just that we would become a church like Antioch where we become a place for divine transformation. Where disciples get named Christians, and where Saul gets named Paul, and where Cephas's become Peter's, and where Jacob's become Israel's.
Because Jesus changes everything when his church is working right. A shift so dramatic it takes a name change to do it justice. I'm going to close here in a second and, and we'll, we'll wrap up in a final chorus we're going to sing together. Lorena, if you want to come. But I imagine Saul getting tapped by Barnabas and showing up in Antioch and Barnabas is like, guys, man, I, I've been telling you about my boy Saul. Like, you got to meet him. Saul, tell him your story. And I can imagine Saul starts sharing and everyone's eyes just get like saucer big. As he starts talking, he's like, oh, yeah, you know, before this, uh, what'd you, what, oh, Saul, what'd you do before you were like doing the Jesus thing? Well, <laughs> I don't want to freak you guys out, but I was murdering you. Like, you hear someone's testimony, and sometimes it makes you feel like, okay, man, I, I could be here. You know, like, you heard Pastor Robert share. He's like, yeah, you know, I was a, I was, I'm an ex-con. I was in prison, and then God changed my life. You're like, oh, I could be here. Like, Saul's on another level of testimony. He's like, yeah, I was a terrorist. Um, I, I've got to imagine every single person listening is like, man, if God can change that dude, I'm going to bring my neighbor next week because... <laughs> I feel like they're about as bad as he is. You know, it, it stirs this faith and hope because they're, they're cognizant of the fact that the grace of God can change anybody. And if he could do it in Saul, he could do it in me. He could do it in that coworker that is always gossiping and, and, and he's just become like the black sheep at the office because he's just mean and nasty. But if, if I could just get him I pray that we become the type of church where the outcasts in the office get invited. I pray we become the type of church where the, the know-it-all student whoever, who breaks the curve every time, everyone's like, oh my gosh, I hate that. They, they, they get brought to church. Not that they would be made dumber, but you know what I'm saying. I pray that we would be the type of church where we're bringing the people that everyone else has given up on and we're like, listen, man, I've seen it before. If Jesus can just get a hold of a life, he can change them. And I know where he's gonna be on Sunday morning at 1030. He'll be in a bunch of churches all throughout South Florida, but I know he's gonna be here. And I pray we become a, a place like Antioch where it's faith, a sky-high faith and anticipation because we know what our God can do. Imagine if Greenhouse became that type of place. Imagine if we became that type of people. Nobody's too far gone for Jesus. No cause is too lost for Jesus. No heart is too hard for Jesus. How do I know? Because he reached me. <laughs> and he can reach anybody. And I'm praying that we would be a place where where Saul's who maybe feel forgotten and overlooked become Paul's and and where ordinary people like you and I become disciples who get called Christians because we just look so much like Jesus. Why don't you join me as we pray? Holy Spirit, I'm asking right now that you would stir faith and conviction in our hearts. Conviction because we want to be better and we want to do better. And Lord, we want to follow you more closely. And faith and hope because we know it's possible by your grace. I want to pause just for a moment and give you a chance to respond. Maybe you're here in the room. Maybe you're watching online and and you realize maybe you've even been calling yourself a Christian, but if you're being truly honest, you're not sure if anyone else would call you that. 
Here's the great news for you this morning. If you're listening under the sound of my voice, maybe you've been listening later on on demand. The great news is you can repent. You can change. You can invite Jesus in and say, Jesus, I have been blowing it so bad. I've been hypocrite number one, and I'm sick of it, and I'm done with it. Help me. Change me. I want to follow you. I want to live for you. I want to think. I want to live differently. And even right now, in the privacy of your own heart, you could commit to living differently, to being a disciple, an active, passionate, imperfect follower of Jesus. If you're in that boat before you leave this morning or before you log off online, I want to encourage you to respond. Your future doesn't have to look like your yesterday. Invite Jesus in. Secondarily, maybe you're here or watching online and you're, you're really, not perfectly, but genuinely, by the grace of God, living as a Christian. You're like, you know, I, I, at my best, in, in my good moments, I have some bad moments, but in my good moments, I think people would say, oh, that person is a Christian. I'm praying that every single one of us, even right now, would pause and ask God for a heart and a vision to be a Barnabas. That we would have a, a heart, a perspective to be on the lookout to help launch other people into their calling and their destiny as well. If that's you, I just want you to open your hands as a posture of surrender and say, God, give me your heart for people. Help me to be a, an encourager like Barnabas. Help me to be someone who's on the lookout to, to launch people into their calling, into their destiny. And if we can all move in that direction, then every single person's needs are going to be met by God through his people.